Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. It's uh, 3 September, about 12.48 in the morning. Of course, I should be in bed, but I'm not. Uh, Four-day weekend for a lot of people. I work today, but a lot of people are off. Uh, we're off today, and most everybody will be off Monday for Labor Day. So I figured I'd get a show in before the, the long weekend ended. Um, so we're on Twitter. Let me do my Twitter plug. We're on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Defense underscore podcast. If you can find the time, check us out on Twitter. Uh, a lot of stuff we talk about on the podcast will go on Twitter if I need to refer anything and back and forth. So they mutually supporting. So the first thing I wanted to look for uh, this weekend was anything on the Chinook. Of course, the Army grounded the Chinooks a few days ago. We did a, a story on that because I thought that was big news. It still is big news. I think the Army has a fleet of 400 Chinooks. I think 70 were affected. Anyway, no news on the Chinook. Uh so once something happens with the Chinook and they get them back up and going, we'll definitely talk about that. But I did want to do a follow-up on the the U.S. Uh, the AFSOC, U.S. Air Force Special Operations Command, Ospreys. And there's a story in it from 2 September, which was yesterday by a few hours. Uh, 2.37 p.m. on Defense News by Stephen Losey, L-O-S-E-Y. U.S. Air Force clears Ospreys to fly amid unresolved clutch problem if you remember well he'll talk about it let's talk about the article so air force cleared cv 22 osprey tilt rotor aircraft to resume flying some two and a half weeks after grounding grounding them due to a clutch problem that remains unresolved uh the head of u.s air force special operations command lieutenant general jim sliff slife s-l-i-f-e He's the one who made the decision to ground him a couple weeks ago. Uh, he made some statements today saying on Friday, which was yesterday, authorized the command's fleet of 52 Ospreys to resume flying with measures to limit the risk from hard, clay, hard clutch engagement incidents. Uh, AFSOC spokeswoman, Lieutenant Colonel Rebecca H-E-Y-S-E, Hayes, said the aircraft are expected to start operating again this weekend. So no long weekend for AFSOC. So General Slife grounded AFSOC's tilt rotor Ospreys August 16th after two hard clutch engagement incidents in the preceding six weeks, saying he was concerned about the airman's safety. Uh, just a reminder, hard clutch engagement happens when the clutch that connects the rotor gearbox to the engine slips. This causes the Ospreys to immediately transfer the power load from one engine to the other engine to ensure the aircraft can keep running in the event of an engine failure. Uh, the article goes on, AFSOC is still not sure why the Osprey clutches are slipping, but the command has put steps in place to, to manage them for the near term. Uh, AFSOC studied all the data from 15 recorded hard clutch engagements instance across the Osprey Enterprise to figure out what a common factor. 
to figure out what was the common factor there. Uh, so here's the mitigating steps they're going to take. AFSOC has instructed Osprey pilots to take two-second pause immediately after taking off to keep the clutch from slipping instead of going to full power immediately. So there's one. Uh, Marine Corps officials told reporters last month that Osprey pilots are instructed to hover after taking off to check instruments and ensure the clutch is not slipping. So it sounds like the Air Force is going to kind of follow that practice. Uh, let's see. Another thing AFSOC is doing is modifying Osprey training simulators to better reflect clutch slipping scenarios and increase training for Osprey pilots on flying under marginal power and aborted takeoffs. And let's see. There's something else. Oh, here we go. Air crews also, uh, CV, I'm sorry, CV2, CV22 maintainers are conducting inspections of the aircraft to make sure the systems are tracking the correct information on drivetrain components. AFSOC said that reviewing data from the aircraft and is considering replacing drivetrain drive components after a certain number of flight hours. And, of course, AFSOC said it hopes to refine the root cause of these clutch slippage, slippages in the long term, putting a permanent solution in place. So they're starting to fly them again. Looks like they're going to use the same practice that the Marine Corps is using uh, when they uh, use the Ospreys. And I like the way that uh, they're going to incorporate uh, training simulators for the pilots to inc uh, incorporate uh, clutch slipping scenarios to help them. And then they're looking at a maintenance program also. Now, there was another article on this from Breaking Defense. Aaron Meta, I think that's the one that we referred to when this when this happened. It's from September second, eleven thirty six. I'm going to refer to some of the stuff in this article because he does uh, he expands on some things. His title is Air Force Clears CV twenty two Ospreys to Fly After Two Week Safety Shutdown. Let me get to the part where a little different than the uh, Defense News article. So here's an interesting bit. Uh, the same is the same uh, spokeswoman, Lieutenant Colonel Becky H-E-Y-S-E, -E, Hayes. Uh, according to her, Slife made the decision, we know General Slife, made the decision to return to flight operations after gathering data and input from air crews. All CV-22 air crews took part in working groups led by the JPO, Joint Program Office. That was kind of left out of the other article. That's kind of important, though, I think, that they involved the air crews and helped them decide uh, to start flying again. So the air crews took part in working groups led by the JPO, and a series of surveys were set up to give air crews a way to provide direct feedback on the issue and propose possible solutions, which is very, very smart. Uh, and General Slife says, informed by analysis of the data and inputs from the crews, uh, he has authorized resumption of flight operations with the risk controls and mitigation. And we kind of talked about the, the other author talked about the uh, mitigation of risk. Uh, let's see what else. He talks about the training simulators loaded with more scenarios where this occurs. And let's see what else. They're starting to re refer to this problem as an HCE, which is called hard clutch engagement. So if you ever hear that, HCE. And there are other mitigations focused on flight operations. Until a root cause is identified, solutions implemented, the focus is on mitigating operations in flight regimes where HCEs are more prevalent and ensuring our air crews are trained as best as possible to handle HCEs when they do occur. That sounds like the Marine Corps' approach. Uh, let's see. 
then the then the author kind of talks about the Marine Corps. They've known about it since 2010, and and they've got their mitigation in place. So anyway, that's it. Uh, they're flying again. So the HCE hard clutch engagement still happening, but they've got measures in place to kind of uh, control it if it does. That's just a follow up on that one. So we'll move on. Now, while we're talking about follow-ups, you know, there's still the future vertical lift contract out there for the Army uh, for the FLARA program, FLARA program. That's supposed to be happening in September. At least that's what the Honorable Doug Bush told us a few months ago when he was uh, testifying in front of the Senate Armed Service Committee or the House. I can't remember which. Anyway, it's supposed to have a decision this month. No no word on the IVAS either. We know that the IVAS had the uh, operational test in uh, July. Uh, results have not been put out yet, and we know that that program is under a lot of scrutiny based on those test results. So still no word from the Army on that. We're keeping an eye on that. Haven't forgot about that either. Well, I guess that's as good as transition as any, good a transition as any, talking about testing. Uh, there was a pretty good article. I almost spent a lot of time on this one. From It was all over, but I, I'm choosing one from USNI News. It's a pretty good website. It's a Navy website, so that's where a lot of the Navy stories I get are from this website. It's by who? Sam Legrone. And the title is White House to Nominate DOT&E Head Nicholas Guerton as Navy Acquisition Chief. Now, this guy here, uh, Guerton, he's nominated. He is the, um, he would be the Honorable Doug Bush for the Army of the Navy, this guy Guerton. Now he's right now he was he was appointed well, he was nominated by uh, the president and confirmed in the Senate back in I guess the fall of 2021 to be the uh, the current director of, of operational testing and evaluation. So that's his current position. But uh, the news today is that uh, when is this article from September 2nd yesterday? All this stuff's just from yesterday. So the Pentagon's weapon tester will be nominated to lead the Army's acquisition efforts the Army announced on Friday. Nicholas Quirton, the current director of operational tests and evaluation, is now set to be the White House's nominee for the Assistant Secretary for Research, Development, and Acquisition. They call it RDA in the uh, Navy. Of course, the Army calls it a SALTI. Uh, the director of test evaluation reports directly to the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, Law, Lloyd Austin and the Deputy Secretary Catherine Hicks, Kath Hicks. Uh, let's see. So he was confirmed of that job in December. He hasn't been there very long uh, as the director of tests and evaluation. Now, he's been nominated for this uh, Navy job, um, but he used to work in the Navy. He's got experience. Prior to being the test and evaluation, he worked for the Office of Deputy Assistant Deputy. Geez, maybe I can learn to talk one of these days. Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research Development, RDT&E, Research Development Test and Evaluation, from 2011 to 2016, for more than a decade, and for more than a decade as a submarine engineer for Navy Sea Systems Command throughout his career. So he's not a dumb person. Uh, he has an extensive four-decade combined military and civilian career in submarines. Ship construction, maintenance, development, testing of weapons, sensors, combat management products, including improvement of systems engineering and defense acquisition. Mm -hmm. So I think he was a PEO, too. 
a PM for, where is it at? I'll find it. Here it is. Prior to that, uh, he was the executive director of the Amphibious Auxiliary and Sea Lift Office in PEO Ships. So he's got acquisition experience. Now he's got test experience. And now he wants, they're going to put him back to acquisition for the Navy. Um, and he seems like he'd be able to handle this, seamlessly go back and forth. And I was going to say that, I don't know. Looks like my initial thoughts were probably not right because just in a quick nutshell, you know, there's three, really four uh, factors for acquisitions. First of all, you need the requirements. You need a concept and a requirements, and that's its own bucket. That's its own command that does that. In the Army, it's uh, Army Futures Command. I don't know who does it for the Navy. And then you have the, the material developer, the acquisition people. That's its own little bucket. And then, of course, you have the funding, the P- PPBE, they call it. That's another, and they all work together. You know, you can't, you got to have a requirement. Then you got to have a material developer work with industry to build it, and then you have somebody to pay for it. Well, there's another circle in that, and that's the test community. And the test community, especially when it comes between a requirement, you have a requirement. I say the requirement to build a, uh, a machine gun is this. And I give it to the material developer, acquisition folks. They go work with industry, and they start building this thing and testing it and all that. Well, the test community is kind of neutral because the requirements people, they're worried about performance. They have this thing, uh, uh, performance schedule and costs. So the requirements people, they don't care how much it costs. Not really. They do, but they don't. They want to see it perform. So performance schedule and cost is their priority. Well, the material developer, the acquisition people, they're kind of worried about cost, schedule, and performance. And I'm loosely, this is very loosely me saying it. So whenever you start uh, testing a piece of equipment and it's not testing the way it should be or it's not performing the way it should be, maybe there's some give and take on the requirement. So the material developer will go to the requirement and say, hey, technology's there. We can't make this machine gun shoot accurately at 5,000 meters. How about 4,000? Are you okay with that? And there's, up, there's give and take, there's trade-offs and all that because you don't want to kill the program because you, if you're a requirements person, you don't want to kill the program just because you're being stubborn. Now, I'm, this is very loose stuff here. Don't hold me to it. This is just a makeup scenario. The point I'm trying to make, not very eloquently, is that the test community is the neutral party in that. So if there's ever a disagreement between maybe a requirement and uh, a capability of a <coughs> man, excuse me, a capability of a, a system from industry. The test community is a neutral party. They're the one that said this is the requirement and this is what it's doing against the requirement. So it's kind of a balancing act. And the point I was trying to make, not very good, is that this guy is just coming from the director of operational test and evaluation who is a neutral party, and now he's going to acquisitions field again. And I'm not saying he would, but there could be if he's in charge of acquisition and the, and the test community is, you know, breaking his chops about one of his programs that he thinks is a, is a heavy-duty program, is he going to use his former influence of being the boss over there to try to get what he wants? And I'm, obviously he's not going to do that. And there is no conflict of interest, 
conflict of interest, why else would the president nominate him? And the guy does have experience in both fields. He was worked for the acquisition. I mean, he was a PEO for crying out loud. So you can't find a better person, more qualified person to do the job. And uh, I don't think he knows about shipbuilding. He was a PEO and he knows about test community. So anyway, I thought I'd bring that up as, I don't know, I thought it'd be a better story. But after I started getting into his uh, bio, I found out that he's already done this before, kind of gone back and forth, and he's going back to the uh, acquisition. So anyway, there you go. We'll, we'll see if he gets, uh, gets approved, and he was going to be the new, he's going to be the version of Doug Bush, except for the Navy. And one more time, his name is, what's his name? Nicholas Guertin. And I'll stop right there. That's enough. All right. Next thing we're going to tackle is uh, it's that Iran deal. The Iranian. This is from Breaking Defense. Justin Katz. Uh, this story is from yesterday, two September. Iranian Navy nabs two American sailing drones, dumps them overboard. Iran media. The incident comes two days after the IRGC Navy support ship seized and then released a similar drone. So if you're keeping up with this, uh, and I normally don't do. Um, stuff like this. I usually stick to, anyway, I normally don't comment on like super current events like this news type stuff, but this one here, I thought it would be good to comment on because uh, it, it directly, directly shows what this MDO is kind of all about. This is an example of why the, the department of defense, uh, the, the joint forces is trying to do this MDO an approach this is an example of where the MDO is kind of coming into play, I think. And let me get into the story here. Stand by. So the story goes on. A video from Iran- Iranian media appears to show Iranian Navy sailors unceremoniously, I love that, and unceremoniously tossing two American unmanned service vessels aboard, overboard in the Red Sea, just days after the Navy said it prevented a different Iranian vessel from seizing a similar drone. I'm going to write this down. We're going to have to do a, something on Twitter about this this drone. I think it's they're called Sail Drone USVs. That's that's what we're talking about here. So I'll do something on Twitter tomorrow, I think, on what these USVs are. Uh, let's see. In the video aired by Iranian state media outlet and then circulated on social media, a group of sailors wearing life jackets aboard the Iranian destroyer Jamaran, J-A-M-A-R-A-N, Jamaran, are seen pushing two sail drone USVs over the side. Another identified ship can be seen in the background. I think that's supposed to be a, a U.S. ship. The Yarley Burke class destroyer is in the background. Uh, let's see. The Associated Press reported that the incident occurred today, which was yesterday, 2 September, and, and Iran claimed it warned an American destroyer about several unmanned spying vessels abandoned in international maritime routes before ultimately releasing the drones in what was called a safe area. We have a spokesman for the 5th Fleet, U.S. 5th Fleet, Navy 5th Fleet Commander Tim Hawkins, in a statement subsequent to this story's publication, said the Navy intercepted the Iranian warship after detaining the sailed drones. The USVs were unharmed and taking unclassified, I'm sorry, they were unarmed, not unharmed. They were unarmed and taking unclassified photos of the environment while loitering at least four nautical miles from the nearest maritime traffic lane. Two American destroyers operating nearby, as well as an MH-17 
60R Seahawk arrived and began communicating with the Iranian warship until the latter eventually released the USVs. Uh, Hawkins said the USVs posed no risk to naval traffic and had been operating in the general vicinity of the Southern Red Sea for more than 200 consecutive days without incident. Okay, this incident comes days after a support ship crewed by the Islamic Revolution Guards Corps, IRGC, Navy, attempted to seize a different sail drone USV while transiting the Arabian Gulf. And let's see, Navy released two, U.S. Navy released two surveillance videos of that incident. Uh, earlier in the week, U.S. CENTCOM called Iran's action destabilizing, illegal, and unprofessional. And, <laughs> and then Iran, <laughs> of course, shot back at CENTCOM's comments, labeling them ridiculous allegations. These reports also said that IRGC claimed it took timely and vigilant measures with the aim of maintaining safety of shipping routes. I love that. Uh, anyway, we'll do a tweet on what these sail drones are. And the re- but the reason why I brought it up is uh, multi-domain operations. And let me find let me find link to that so I can kind of kind of link them together. See what try to explain what I'm talking about. So I'm stealing this information. This is the Army's version of multi-domain operations. This is a trade doc, training, training and doctrine pamphlet 525-3-1, if you're interested, uh, really interested. But anyway, it kind of breaks it down, and I'll try to break it down and not go crazy with this. So the essential idea of multi-domain operations from the horse's mouth is Army forces, as an element of the joint force, conducts MDO, multi-domain operations, to prevail in competition, and when necessary, Army forces penetrate, disintegrate enemy anti-access and aerial denial systems at A2, what do they call it, uh, A2AD uh, systems, and exploit the result freedom of maneuver to st- achieve strategic strategic objectives and force a return to competition on favorable terms. So, um, so that's, that's the central idea of it. And uh, that's not really what I wanted to talk about. This is what I want to talk about. This is where MDO came about. There's a military, first of all, you define the problem. The problem is how does the army enable a joint force to compete with China and Russia or near peer, this is me adding, near peer, which would be North Korea and Iran, below armed conflict, penetrate, disintegrate their anti-access aerial denial systems, nobly defeat them in armed conflict and consolidate gains, and then return to competition. So competition is used twice there. Compete, and if comp- competition goes into conflict, then you penetrate, disintegrate, anti blah, 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 Consolidate gains and then return to competition, hopefully on a better better uh, position than you started. Um, so to solve that problem, the Army says there's five other problems you got to address to solve the main problem. The main problem is the one I just read. And here, the I'm not going to go over five. I'm only going to go over, I'll go over five. The first one is how does the joint force compete to enable the defeat of an enemy of an adversary's operations to destabilize the region, deter the escalation of violence, and should violence escalate, enable a rapid transition to armed conflict. And then that's step one, which we're fixing to talk about. And then there's step two is how does the joint force penetrate, you know, anti-access aerial denial? How does the joint force disintegrate and conduct operational and tactical maneuver? That's where the BCTs come in. 
Uh, how does the joint force exploit resulting freedom of maneuver to achieve operational strategic objectives? Again, that for the Army, that's their BCTs. And then how do you recompete to consolidate gains and provide sustainable outcomes for long-term deterrence? So those are the five problems that solves the main problem. The, the first problem that we're in now, that I think we're in now, with Iran is how does the joint force compete to, to enable the defeat of an inv- in adversary's operation to destabilize the region. So what you got going on right now, I think it was the Red Sea, is that what it said, is competition between the U.S. Navy and Iranian Navy, U.S. and Iran. And that's all it is. It's, it's a competition to for dominance. Uh, you know, we think we're over, the United States is over there in the international waters. Iran says you're, you know, you're causing trouble. You, you say you're blocking the sea lanes, but you know probably not. But it's just um, destabilizing the region and just establishing dominance. I think it's probably going on in the South China Sea with China, and this is just an example of competition. And hopefully, it doesn't go into armed competition. But the idea behind MDO is to compete successfully to prevent competition, uh, to to prevent conflict. And if you do have to go to conflict, to be ready to you know, take care of business if that does happen, win, and then return to competition on a stronger position than you were. That's basically in a nutshell what MDO is in about four minutes. Hopefully everybody's still awake. I won't spend much more time on this. So we named the overall problem. We named the five problems. Now there's tenets to solve the problems. And the three tenets are uh, calibrated force posture, which I'm not going to go into, Multi-domain formations, which we kind of went in depth with a few episodes ago on what the Army's idea of a multi-domain formation is, and convergence. So three tenets are calibrated force posture, multi-domain formations, and convergence. And where have we heard convergence before? Oh, Project Convergence. And uh, that's where the JADC2 comes in, JADC2. And that's that experiment that the Army's going to run well, they're going to run it this fall down at NTC, over at NTC. And they named it Project Convergence just because of, of that. And the sooner, I guess we'll be getting into that pretty soon. This fall, they're going to operate. Uh, they're going to go into Project Convergence. And we're going to keep an eye on that and try to report on as much as we can. So anyway, that's where they're getting convergence for Project Convergence. It's one of the tenets that so- supposedly will solve the five problems that supposedly solves the main problem. And competition is, you know, one of the problems that we're trying to solve. And we're seeing it play out probably, you know, all the time. I think China and the Solomon Islands is is competition between the United States and China and the Solomon Islands out there. And you're seeing it play out right there with Iran and uh, the United States and the Red Sea. Okay, I probably beat that horse to death. So I just wanted to use that as an example of competition and how it relates to MDO. All right, we're at 27-11, Um, Hmm, one more story. Ah, we'll try it. I was going to go over 30 minutes, but that's okay. Uh, this is from the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. You know, we've been doing pretty decent on uh, reporting that. It's called DISCA.mil. If you want to see any major arms sales, you can go there. There were seven in August. We reported on the ones in Australia with the helicopters and some others. Anyway, I can't think top of my head, but there are three already in September. It's the 3rd of September. They're all going to Taiwan. Uh, 
Taipei, which is the capital of Taiwan. And we'll go over one by one. We won't spend a lot of time on it. So we'll go the first one, uh, Taipei Economic and Cultural Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office in the United States, also known as Turk. If you hear the term Turco, it means Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office in the United States. Uh, they want AGM-84 Lima-1 Harpoon Block 2 missiles. So, like they always start out, the State Department has made a determination approving a, they always call it a possible, approving a, a possible military sale to Taipei, to Turco, uh, for AGM-84 Lima-1 Harpoon Block missiles, Block 2 missiles, and related equipment for an estimated cost of $355 million. Uh, Turco is requested to buy 60 Harpoon Block 2 missiles and four Harpoon Block 2 exercise missiles. Also included are guidance units, radar seekers, altimeters, spare, spare parts, spare and repair parts, support and test equipment, all the normal stuff, pubs and technical documentation. Usually contracting is involved in there somewhere. Uh, yep, U.S. government contractor representatives, technical assistant, personnel training and training equipment, which is always, always important, for a total of $355 million. Uh, let's see. The purpose, what's the purpose of the sales? Contribute to the modernization of the recipient, also known as Taiwan's, capability to meet current and future threats by providing a flexible solution to augment existing service and air defenses. Uh the proposed sale of this equipment and support will not alter the basic military balance in the region. You know that's always in there. My question is, why the heck are you doing it then? Uh, the principal contractor is Boeing. And I don't want to talk about anything else. The recipient will, will be able to employ a highly reliable and effective system to counter and deter maritime aggressions, coastal blockades, and amphibious assaults. I wonder where those would come from. Anyway, so those are the Harpoon missiles. How many do they want? They want 60. So, of course, I went to Boeing to talk about, to see what the Harpoon is and does. So we'll talk about the Harpoon real quick. Harpoon 2, this is from the Boeing website. It's an auto autonomous, features an autonomous all-weather over-the-horizon strike capability. It is the ideal weapon for both anti-ship and land strike missions. They can be launched from aircraft, ships, submarines, and by mobile coastal defense vehicles. I like that. Mobile coastal defense vehicles. I'd build a bunch of those if I was Taiwan. Uh, Harpoon Block 2 is a proven weapon system that can accurately locate and hit a variety of targets using its glo global positioning systems, aided inertial, aided inertial navigation. Its 500-pound blast fragmentation warhead delivers lethal firepower against ships at sea, littorals and open ocean, coastal defense sites, surface-to-air missile sites, exposed aircraft, industrial facilities, ships, and crowded ports. Boeing has been building and upgrading the Harpoon for 40 years. Block 2 missiles are used by 30 international allies, more than 600 ships, 180 submarines, 12 different type of aircraft, and land-based launch vehicles carry Harpoon missiles today. That's a pretty good uh, flyer here. Uh, the length is 182.2 inches for a ship launch, 151 for an air launch. Diameter is 13.5 inches. Heavy suckers. 
1,160 pounds for the air configuration, 1,500 pounds for the ship configuration. Range is in excess, range is in excess of 67 nautical miles. Uh, let's see. Guidance is active radar, GPS. Penetration is HE blast. Oh, I'm sorry. The warhead is penetration, HE blast. Uh, and then it gets into some technical stuff that I don't understand, so I won't get into it. Basically, that's the basics of it. So harpoon missiles going to Taiwan. All right, we'll even queue up the next one. Okay, here's the next one. Uh, Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office, also known as Turco in the United States. They want AIM, AIM 9X Block 2 Sidewinder missiles. Uh, let's see. The State Department has made a determination approving a possible foreign sale to Turco. Uh, for AIM 9X Block 2 Sidewinder missiles and related equipment for an estimated cost of $85.6 million. Uh, Turco is requested to buy 100 AIM 9X Block 2 Sidewinder missiles and four tactical guidance units. Also, container, also included are containers, spare parts, support and test equipment, pubs and technical documentation, personnel training, personnel training and training equipment, contractor rep, the normal stuff. Estimated cost $85.6 million. Uh, the purpose of this is maintain a credible defensive capability. The proposed sale will help improve the security of the recipient and assist in maintaining political stability, military balance, and economic progress in the region. It will help the recipient meet current and future threats. Uh, employ a highly reliable and effective system to increase their warfighting effectiveness ad needed, which can counter or deter aggressions by demonstrated precision against air targets. Okay, this shoots stuff down. Uh, let's see, the recipient will have no difficulty absorbing this equipment into its armed forces. It will not alter the basic military balance of the region. We know that. Uh, the principal contractor will be Raytheon Missiles and Defense in Tucson. And, okay, so that's it. Sidewinder missiles, how many they want? 100. So I went to Raytheon just to talk about the Sidewinder real quick. It's not as good as the Boeing site, but it's okay. Uh, let's see, what is a Sidewinder? The Sidewinder is an infrared tracking short-range multi-mission missile. It's a triple threat missile that can be used for air-to-air -air engagement, surface attack, and surface launch missions without modifications. It's a Navy-led joint program with the Air Force. Uh, it has 28 foreign military sales partners and advanced infrared tracking, short-range missiles, combat-proven in several theaters around the world. It can be used on multiple platforms. This weapon is configured for easy installation in a wide range of, of modern aircraft, including F-15C Eagle, F-15E Eagle, F-16 Fighting Falcon, uh, F-18 Super Hornet, EA-6 Growler, F-22 Raptor, and all F-35 strike variants. As part of the National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System, also named, known as NASAMS, AIM-19X adds a short layer of defense. Yeah, that sucker's on everything. So, you might be asking yourself, well, if you're giving it to Taiwan, what type of airplanes do they have? Do they have any of these? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because according to this website called We Are the Mighty, I'm not kidding, that's the name of it, wearethemighty.com. I was going to use Wikipedia, but I thought I'd change it up. This is what they've got in their Air Force. Their Air Force is known as, it's not called the Taiwan Air Force. 
even though that's what everybody calls it. It's actually called, what the hell is it called? It's called the Republic of China Air Force. But it's unofficially called the Taiwan Air Force. Uh, or by its acronym, which is ROCAF, Republic of China Air Force, ROCAF. So they've got F-5s, which has been around forever, USF-5. Um, they received their first F-5s in 1965. Uh, they have 336 in their inventory. Of course, you know, F-5 is not the most modern thing. So later they got F-16s, which the Sidewinder will use F-16s. Um, so which is a fantastic fighter. I'm not an Air Force person, but I, even I know the F-16 is a, is a fantastic airplane. Um, who makes the F-16? General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin makes the F-16, I guess. It was originally built by General Dynamics. Now Lockheed makes it. So anyway, how many of these do they have? They have 150. They got 150 F-16As and Bs in 1992. And have they got some upgrade ones in 2012. Uh, they've got an F-15. Uh, Lockheed Martin built an F-16 Victor variant, V. And they have 66 of these V model F-16s. So that's their frontline fighter. Then they have some Mirages which is a French fighter, I think. Yep, it's a French fighter. And then they started making their own, uh, the Taiwan. They call it, what is it called? Please have patience with me. It's called IDF. And I think it's called Indigenous Domestic Something. Indigenous Defense Fighter Program. So they started building their own aircraft. They look kind of like a F-16, to be honest with you. Let me see how many they got real quick. I'm almost done here. Excuse me. It doesn't say how many they got. Oh, I'm sorry. They got 130 of them. So they're, they're building their own. So those, those are the four aircraft that the Taiwan Air Force has. Uh, F-5s, Mirages, F-16s, and they have their own IDF. It's actually called the F-CK, F-CK-1. Um, I won't, I won't even, I'm not even going to touch that one. Okay. All right, so we're at uh, 38 minutes and 25 seconds. I think that's all I wanted to talk about. Let me check my thing. Yep, we talked about no news on the Chinook. AFSOC V-22s are back flying. Iran, and we talked about multi-domain operations and the competition, what's going out there in the Red Sea. New Navy acquisition guy and defense security cooperation. There's three, four military selves to Taiwan. Did we cover the third one? No, we didn't. Jeez. I was trying to end it. I won't spend much time on this one. I know you guys are ready to go. Uh, this one is called... Uh, Where's this one? This is, uh, again, Turco, and they want contract logistics support for surveillance radar program. Uh, this is a real simple one. Uh, Turco is requested by follow-on contractor logistics support for surveillance radar program, uh, program management, minor modifications, upgrades, spares, return parts, public pubs and tech, and general logistics stuff. Sounds like they're already doing it. They just want to... Uh, What's the purpose of it? There's usually a purpose. 
uh, will improve the recipient's capability to meet current and future threats by ensuring continued operation. Continued operation means they've been doing this for a while. Uh, the surveillance radar program, which provides improved situational awareness and threat warning capabilities critical to regional security. And I went and I did some checking on it. The contractor is Raytheon, and this is a super old story, but it's from Raytheon. And it's Raytheon Surveillance Radar Program for Taiwan Complete System Design Review. This is from 2006, and it's from, Ray, it's from Raytheon. Uh, Raytheon has successfully completed the system design review. It's a two-day technical review, and it's for the SRP program. The SRP early warning system will enable Taiwan Air Force to detect and track long and short-range tactical ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and other air-breathing targets. Uh, so that's the bottom line. So it's an air defense system, and they just need sustainment of it. That's what it sounds like. So there you go. There's your three military cells for the month of September so far. All right, so we're at 40 minutes, kind of a long show. We got to a lot of stuff, though. Um, man, are we on episode 44 or 45? I don't even remember. I just said it, too. I'm going to go with 44. Nope, we're on 45. My apologies. All right, so we're on episode 45. I've kept you for 41 minutes. So I'm going to let you go. Just a reminder, we're on Twitter. I have homework, and I have to tweet out something. I don't remember what it was. I wrote it down. Oh, yeah. I'm going to tweet out about what that uh, the uh, that unmanned uh, vehicle was that the Iranian was trying to steal. Or actually, they were trying to protect the waterways by moving it. So I'll, I'll tweet that what that's all about. And that's it. So uh, 41 minutes, 38 seconds. I think that's it. Episode 45 in the books. Thank you very much and good night.